Good morning, welcome to Calvary Church here in Brighton. It's good to be with you this morning. Wherever you're listening, we pray that you'll be blessed as you join with us in this service. We're here to worship the Lord God together and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that God will help us to read his word, to study his word and to praise him together. Even though we're separated physically, we're one in spirit as Christian people And we are looking forward to the day, we are longing for the day when we can meet together again as Christians. I have it in my heart this morning to read a psalm, a very well-known psalm, which you've no doubt heard many times before. It's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's sing a version of that psalm. The Lord's my shepherd. The words will be on the screen.
Now let's come to pray. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in one. Father, we thank you that as Christians, we can come before you and we know that you are are not just a distant God, but our Father. And you are a shepherd of your people. We thank you so much for this psalm which reminds us of how you care for your people, how you protect and lead your people. You lead them by still waters. You make us lie down in green pastures. You restore our soul. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Lord, this psalm has been a blessing for every generation of believing people since it was written. And Lord, in these days, we come once again to you. We say we we are glad that you are our shepherd and that we can depend on you and we can come to you and we can trust in you as individual Christians, as a people, as a church. We can come before you. We, We know that you can supply our needs. I want to thank you this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ, our precious saviour, who went to that cross suffered, who deliberately chose to lay down his life for the sake of his people that we might be reconciled to you. Because we can only be the sheep of your pasture and your children if someone has paid for our sin and taken that burden upon himself, the debt that we owe to you. And the Lord Jesus Christ has done that. The Lord Jesus Christ has done that. He's conquered the grave, rose again, sitting at your right hand. We thank you so much that he's coming again to this world to take us, those who believe, to be with him. We pray this morning that you would encourage our hearts, Lord. This life is full of battles and problems and blessings as well. Good days, bad days, difficult days, struggles, complications, sins, failures, weaknesses, frailties, And yet, we as your people come to you, good shepherd, and ask you to help us. We pray for the meeting this morning, that you will bless your people, that you will come by your Holy Spirit. I really believe today, Lord, that there are people that need to hear this word. I need to hear this word, preaching to myself. We need to hear your word. Speak to us. Your word is life. We pray that you would change our hearts as we come to you this morning and work in us that which is good pray for your Holy Spirit pray for all the brothers and sisters scattered all over Brighton and Hove and beyond that you would bless them and keep them help none to fall by the wayside look after your sheep and lead them through this time of um, crisis and separation Lord and bring us back together we pray regather the flock in due course in your own good time and add to the number of this flock as well forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I pray that your grace would permeate all that we do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing another song, um, a new song, a children's song called Jesus Good and Kind. Sorry, Jesus Strong and Kind. So let's sing this together. The words once again will be on the screen.
From the word of God today, I've chosen a chapter from 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll read the whole chapter. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about food, sorry, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, 
the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us, close to any, sorry, bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if, if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to sin, to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends, during this time of separation, it's a really good opportunity for us as the church of Jesus Christ, or part of that church, to think about, to reflect upon the nature of the church, the preciousness of the church, the importance of the church, and to reflect upon the fact that God has called us to be in this interdependent community, one with another. What we do, the actions that we take, the decisions we make, affects one another. We're bound up together in love, in the spirit, as God's people. That's what we've been called to. That's the reality of the Christian church. In this chapter, we see the Corinthians in the city of Corinth, the Christians there, asking Paul, the apostle, about questions which were important to them, things they've been discussing in the church. What have we been discussing in these days? What has the church at large been discussing? One of the most recent things we've been debating and and talking about is meeting together again. How can we do that in our context? What's the best way of doing this? What is the Lord saying to us about this? The people in, in the days of Paul had their own issues and questions which they wanted to bring to him and ask him for advice on. We might also ask the question, how is my behaviour affecting other people? And I'm asking myself this question, first and foremost, I'm not moralising you. How is my behaviour, my choices, affecting others? And how might the devil be wanting to use this to harm and wound other Christians? That is the question I want us all to ask today. So the Christians in Corinth had asked Paul about this debate they'd been having about meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And the idol temples of Corinth, you know, the city was full of idols and full of temples and meat was used and sacrificed to the Greek gods and some of that meat was sold in the public market. The old word for market in the King James Version is the shambles. That's why I've called this sermon today Christian love in the midst of a shambles. Meat was being sold in those markets for public consumption, which had been sacrificed and used in these horrible pagan ceremonies in worshipping these false gods and these idols. And this was a massive part of the public life of the city. It was just everywhere in Corinth. 
Many of the Christians at Corinth were young believers who had been saved from pagan backgrounds, backgrounds of idolatry. They were understandably very concerned to avoid anything which smacked of their previous life in paganism. But regarding this question, should a Christian, should a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ still eat meat which has been sacrificed to these idols, there was debate and division and a range of opinions in the church. In one corner, you had mature believers, strong believers. These people felt it was fine to eat the meat that was sold in the markets. And Paul addresses them in this section, doesn't he? He describes them in verse 1 as people that had knowledge. This could be a quote from the Corinthians. We know that we all possess knowledge. And Paul speaks to them as one who also has knowledge. He has understanding. He has a mature understanding of these matters. He says this, doesn't he? We all know. We all know in verse 1. So it's not verse 1. That's further on, isn't it? Anyway, I'll come back to that in a minute. So in one corner you had these mature believers. People who had this understanding a more mature understanding of the Christian life and how things worked. They were not better Christians than the others. They weren't first-class Christians. They weren't a Christian elite. They were simply those who progressed a bit further in the Christian life in their understanding of spiritual matters. And then you had the so-called weak Christians of the church, those with weak consciences. And once again, this is not saying that these Christians are somehow inferior or second-class or foolish, or worldly. We need to be very careful how we define this. The weak Christians were ones that Christ had died for and had accepted into his church. But they had weak consciences, as it says in verse 7, and they lacked this knowledge that some of their fellow believers had, this maturity, this understanding. Dear friends, often when we think about weaker Christians in the church, we automatically assume, or maybe, maybe it's not you, maybe I do, I assume that they're the people who are a bit flaky, a bit superficial, who don't quite get what it means to be a Christian, who are perhaps a bit worldly, not very serious about following Christ, a bit shallow perhaps. But Paul does not talk about weak Christians in those terms. For him, the very opposite is true. These weaker Christians in Corinth, with their very sensitive consciences, they were very serious about holiness and following the Lord Jesus and obeying him and pleasing him. That's why they were so fastidious and careful about avoiding this meat that had been sold in the meat markets, which had been sacrificed to these idols. If anything, they weren't worldly and flaky. They were oversensitive. They were overcautious, perhaps a bit fearful, perhaps troubled by doubts, perhaps still not quite getting it, working through some of these issues. That's what this weak conscience means, someone who is still a bit fearful, whose conscience is oversensitive, that little voice inside all of us that God has given us, which acts as a kind of guardian of our behaviour. Sometimes that can be oversensitive. A weak conscience doesn't mean somebody who's been desensitised to sin. A weak conscience is not a conscience that allows you to do things that you shouldn't be doing. Quite the opposite. A weak conscience is an oversensitive conscience, one that's so concerned about pleasing the Lord and doing the right thing that perhaps it goes too far the other way and leads the person to be overcautious. The Bible does talk about conscience 
that allows you to do things which you shouldn't be doing. That's called a seared conscience, a conscience that's been seared, as it were, torn open, destroyed. You can read about that in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 2. A conscience that's been desensitized, that you sin and you don't even feel any pangs of guilt or any conviction because you keep on sinning again and again and again. The Corinthian believers weren't guilty of that. So these, these young believers, they were troubled by things that a more mature believer would have understand to be things that a Christian could allow themselves to do, could enjoy with thankfulness. I, I do think they were quite vulnerable. They were quite weak. They were baby Christians. They needed to be supported and loved and nurtured and helped to understand these things, but not pressurized and not led into sin. When I was a young Christian, I had a very oversensitive conscience. I remember it. There were certain things that I couldn't allow myself to do. I was like one of those lifeboats that self-writing. It goes right over to one side, and then it slowly, slowly, it writes itself again. And that's a common phenomenon amongst genuinely converted young Christians, that they have this very, very sensitive conscience, and they want to please the Lord. So much that they're fearful of doing things that a more mature Christian might be able to allow themselves and enjoy doing. But Paul starts with a warning for the mature Christians, the strong Christians in verse 1. Look at it. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Yes, you may have knowledge, you may have understanding. And it's right and it's good for Christians to grow in knowledge and understanding, to grow to maturity, to a mature understanding of what we have in Christ, of who we are in Christ. But it's a danger There's a danger in knowledge that can puff you up with spiritual pride. And none of us is immune from this. When I was a young Christian, I felt I'd made so much progress in the things of God. I started to understand the Bible. I thought I did. I was actually a baby Christian dabbling in the word of God. But I felt I'd progressed beyond other Christians, even adult Christians, more mature Christians. And that's a danger. You can be puffed up with knowledge of your freedom in Christ, what you can do, What you know, that actually you start to look down and despise other people. You get confused and frustrated by their obtuseness, their annoying slowness to understand. Frustrated by their ingrained thought patterns and habits they're still trying to shake off as hangovers from their past life. And you can get impatient and just try to drive them on too quickly when God may be doing a work. The same work that he did in your heart. It takes time for God to do a work in someone. To bring them to that level of maturity. Sometimes we want people to be there all at once. It doesn't work like that. There's a real danger that when you possess knowledge, Christian understanding and maturity, you can ride roughshod over people's feelings and sensibilities. And I've done it myself. I repent. But it's a danger. You can just make people suffer and hurt and wound people causing upset and division and bad feeling because you don't give God time to work in people's hearts and bring them to a more mature understanding. Dear friends, we are told to build people up, to build each other up, to edify each other. That's what edifying means, similar to the word edifice, a building, to build up the people of God, to build up the body, to build up each other. How important it is for us to do this and not cause others to stumble or to hurt them. We know we all possess knowledge, but do we all possess love? It's possible to have all the knowledge in the world, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if we have have not love, we are nothing. It's possible. Do we all have love? 
You might not have much knowledge, but you might have love for God and for his people, and that makes you acceptable to God. The man who loves God is known by God. But if you don't have that love, you can have all the knowledge in the world and still be a million miles from God. The Christian who has knowledge but doesn't have love is like a drunk driver at the wheel of a car. He is a recipe for disaster. He causes carnage and chaos. He can cause a stumbling block, something that trips up fellow Christians. He can even destroy them. It says that in verse 11. He can wound their consciences. And it says in verse 12, he can sin against Christ. By sinning against that fellow believer, even unintentionally, you could be sinning against Christ. Knowledge without love leaves a trail of destruction. Knowledge is good, but knowledge needs to be tempered and governed by Christian love, the love of Christ. Let's look at what Paul says here about how knowledge without love can wound a Christian with a weak conscience. And I I bet that you and I have never really thought about some of these issues because it seems so remote from our reality. The cultural issues seem esoteric and weird and different. We don't get particularly concerned about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols in idol temples. But dear friends, the principle could not be more important. So these knowledgeable Christians that Paul addresses as a fellow knowledgeable Christian, they understood that idols are fake gods. They're nothing. They're bogus. They're phony. They're just figments of human imagination. Verse 4, an idol is nothing at all in the world. There is no God but one. Drawing on the Jewish Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. That doesn't mean that God isn't Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not Trinitarian. He is. But it means that God is one. There is one true God. All other gods and all other lords are idols. They're fake. They should not be worshipped. They should not be venerated. The Bible says that time and time again, from the first page of the Bible to the last, it asserts there is one God and one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God is the Father. He's the creator of all things. It says that in verse 6, from him all all things came. This is what we preach as Christians. This is what we stand upon. This is the rock that Christianity is founded upon. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other. We will not bow the knee to any other God or proclaim any other God. Salvation is found in Christ alone. And we know, don't we, that idols have no power to harm us or do us good or to bless us. They're just simply made up fake gods. There may be demonic forces in some ways behind these idols, but actually the idols themselves are absolutely meaningless. They're empty. It's like worshipping a block of wood or a stone or a picture. Absolutely futile. Nothing to fear. And those Christians in Corinth, those knowledgeable Christians, those strong Christians, they understood this. They could quite happily, with a good conscience, buy meat that had been sacrificed in these horrible pagan ceremonies because they knew it was just meat. And if they received it with thanksgiving, it was something that God had given to bless them. And it was to be enjoyed without any qualms at all. And that was right. They were right before God. That was a biblical position. Who cared if those pagans had offered it to their non-existent idols? They're man-made gods. They were free to eat that meat with a good conscience. Paul says that in verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat. We're no better if we do. It's completely irrelevant. It doesn't affect your spirituality in that sense. But Paul does say in verse 7 that not everybody understands this. He says not everybody knows this, no meaning to understand or comprehend this. 
as I said, those weaker Christians, those young Christians from pagan backgrounds, understandably wanted to avoid anything that was tainted or could be tainted or be seen to be associated with that idolatry they'd be involved with. And it's a good thing, isn't it, to kind of want to completely flee from idols and distance yourself from sin, even if you do go a bit too far in the process. What was the issue here? Paul says, some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. It could be that they still hadn't fully quite grasped that idols are nothing, that they're not real gods at all, that actually there's no spiritual power. Perhaps they felt uneasy that somehow something bad will happen to them for eating this meat. We don't know. Or perhaps they just, they knew the idols weren't true gods, but they were still cautious about this and uneasy about this because of what they'd seen happen in the temples and they just didn't want to be associated with it at all. But in any sense, in any case, their, their, their consciences didn't allow them to eat this meat. They didn't feel right about it. They felt uneasy about it. It just didn't seem right. It seemed like a sin against Christ. It wasn't actually a sin, biblically, but to them, it was a sin. So you had these two groups. You had the, the strong Christians who just did anything they wanted to. They ate all the meat, and you had the weak Christians, so-called, who had massive problems with it. What do you do if you're a strong Christian who has the freedom in Christ to eat this meat? What do you do in a situation like this? What would you do in a similar situation in our church? Not exactly the same, but a similar thing at work. Would you mock and belittle and look down upon those weak Christians and laugh at them for their immaturity and their painful slowness to grasp certain facts about the Christian life? Would you have carried on eating meat right in front of them just to say, well, you know, this is our, our prerogative, this is our right, we're allowed to eat meat, we have good conscience, we have freedom to do this. Who are you to tell me not to eat meat because this is my right and I'm going to insist on my freedom in the Lord? Would you even sit down with a, with a fellow weak believer, offer them this meat, persuade them, urge them, go on, eat this meat, there's nothing wrong with it, you know you're free in Christ to do this, an idol's not, not anything in the world. That, that Christian could have been persuaded and compelled to do it, but they didn't feel right about it. They went home and they wept before the Lord for a sin they believed they committed. Or else, they, they went away with their conscience hardened and calloused because they'd already done something they didn't think was right, and next time when a genuine sin came knocking on their door, a genuine temptation they were less able to deal with it and cope with it and resist it because they'd already compromised in this issue, in this issue. Would you serve it to them in, in, in your house when a believer comes round? You know they've got a problem with this, but you deliberately give them the meat and out of politeness they feel they have to eat it. I think this is what Paul is getting at in verse 10. If anyone with a weak conscience sees you, you, ha- you have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple... Won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So an immature young believer might have seen a more mature believer eating in the idol's temple, eating that meat, because he's got a clean conscience. And he he knows the idol is nothing. And he might say, well, if that mature believer who I look up to is eating in that temple, there can't be anything wrong with idolatry, really. Mixing and matching you know, worshipping the Lord Jesus and worshipping idols as well, kind of polytheism. That's what they did in, in that culture. It was full of people worshipping lots of different gods. It was second nature. 
He said, well, if he's doing it, it must be okay. I don't feel completely at home about it. I don't feel right about it. Something pricks me in my conscience, but I'm going to do it. Because he's doing it. He's like an example of a mature believer. He must be right. I must be wrong. But in doing so, his weak conscience might be defiled. He might be wounded. It says that in verses 7 and verse 12. You know, his weak conscience is wounded, it's defiled, it's spoiled. It's hurt his walk with Christ. It's damaged him in some way. He hasn't actually committed a real sin by eating that meat. He's free to do it. But for him, it is a sin, according to his own understanding. And it may trip him up in a most disastrous way. In all my years, dear friends, of being in church, I don't remember us grappling with this verse, these, these verses, too much. Maybe it's just washed over me and I haven't been listening. But we need to consider how our choices, our lifestyle choices, our spiritual choices, can affect our other fellow brothers and sisters. And I, I put it to you that, that I and perhaps many Christians are not as sensitive as we should be to the needs of other Christians. What Paul envisages here is an extreme acute sensitivity to the spiritual well-being of my brothers and sisters. And I think many of us need to work on that. We need to develop that. We need to ask the Lord to give us that and regain that or get it for the first time. And this, these verses raise the disturbing possibility that someone can exercise their, their legitimate freedom as a Christian to do things which are not intrinsically wrong and yet still be sinning against the brother and even against Christ himself. Look at this. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You might be doing something completely legitimate, but if you're not doing it with this sensitivity, you might be sinning against your brother and wounding him and sinning against Christ. That's a terrible thing. That's an appalling thing, simply because of carelessness and being puffed up and proud and negligent and and just thoughtless. The closest example, this is a bit of a classic example, but it's very difficult to put this into, into an exact context in our culture. The, the most closest example I could think of was the use of alcohol. The Bible doesn't say anywhere, as far as I understand it, that drinking alcohol per se is a sin. Many Christians in this culture don't have a problem with the odd social drink. Getting drunk is a sin. Drinking alcohol itself is not forbidden for Christians. It's something you can enjoy in moderation if you wish to. You don't have to. But some Christians sincerely believe in their consciences that drinking is either unwise or wrong and sinful. I might have complete freedom in my conscience before Christ about having a pint of beer or whatever, but for somebody else it could be a massive stumbling block. And that might cause me, out of love for my brother, to think twice about exercising my freedom. Wouldn't it be awful if another Christian saw me drinking I'm not doing anything wrong, but it really grieved him so much that he felt offended and upset in his spirit, felt that I was sinning in some way. What if he he felt emboldened to join in my example, even if he didn't get drunk and do something which he felt wasn't right? What if I was drinking and he came to my house and I put drinks on the table and said, join me in a drink, and I pressurised him, even though he didn't feel, feel it was right, and he did it, and he went away broken or resentful against me or bitter or just upset before God. 
What would happen if I served my brother? My brother saw me drinking and then started drinking and got drunk and became an alcoholic. Ruined his life. I could insist upon my, my Christian rights, my Christian freedoms. I wouldn't be doing a sin per se, but it would become a sin if I knew my brother would be affected by this or might be affected by this. I still carried on doing it. The selfish, puffed-up Christian says this. Who cares about what you think, talking to the weaker brother? Is it my, my fault that you don't understand the freedom that you have in Christ? Why should I stop doing what I want because of you? Just get over it. Get over it. Grow up. Let me do what I want. That is the way of the selfish, human, puffed-up heart, misusing that knowledge. But Paul says quite categorically in verse 13, if what I eat causes my brother to sin, I will never eat meat again. Never. Not even not eat it in his presence, but never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Heaven forbid. The Lord forbid that I should cause my brother to stumble. Oh, friends, how many times in my life I must have caused my brothers and sisters to stumble. Now, the Lord is gracious. The Lord forgives. He wipes away our sin. He sets our feet upon a rock. And we come to him, we confess. We confess to our brothers and sisters. We've been faultless. That is the Christian way. We are bound to struggle with this. But we at least need to be aware of the issues. I wonder how much, dear Christian brother or sister, do we consider, do we think about how our actions might affect other Christians, other people in the church? I think sometimes we become so individualised and self-absorbed, we don't even give it a second thought sometimes. Churches can become a random collection of hedonistic, selfish, self-centred people whose faith is based upon self-promotion, pleasing oneself, pleasure, personal fulfilment, pursuit of freedom at all costs, my choices, my enjoyment, my package that suits me. And as a result, Christians can listen to what they want, do what they want, say what they want, go where they want, with no real consideration about how this might affect other Christians that Christ died for especially weaker ones. This kind of attitude is a disease in churches. It's so subtle you don't even notice it. We, we love to flaunt our freedom, don't we? Say, look how free I, am, free I am in Christ. And dear friends, freedom is a precious thing. We are free in Christ. We're not under bondage. But there's this kind of insouciant arrogance that Christians can have. That, Look how free I am. I'm parading my freedom. I can do whatever I like. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can dictate to me because my life belongs to me. And what I choose to do is between me and God and no one else. And dear friends, that is not the Christian way. That's not the loving way. I want to give you a few examples. And these, these, none of these perfectly fit the situation. They're all a bit clunky. But I've done my best to show you how some aspects of our behaviour, a few examples of how they can affect other people in the church without us even realising it at times. Perhaps we do realise and still keep on doing it anyway. And this idea of, of behaving in such a way, laying down my rights, that's the principle behind this. That's the important lesson today. I can't give you a hard and fast list of rules about Christian freedom and boundaries and morality. I'm talking about the principle. 
of being willing to submit, submissively lay down my rights, my freedoms, legitimate things in some cases, so that my brother or sister wouldn't be wounded. I read a book recently, a Christian book, about one Christian woman who wanted to get a tattoo. Now, I don't think you can point to a particular verse in the Bible. Some Christians feel they have a verse, but I don't think you can say that tattoos is, are intrinsically wrong. I don't think, personally, I don't like them, and many Christians don't like them, but you, know, you can't say, get a, get a proof text and say this is wrong biblically. You could say it's a matter of Christian conscience and freedom. Some Christians do have tattoos. But this woman, according to this book, was saying, you know, I can't wait to see the faces of those religious devils talking about Christians, other Christians, when they see my tattoo. She was kind of rubbing her hands and gloating as though somehow it was a good thing to to offend other believers that she saw as religious. Probably they were just godly Christians who are trying to obey the Lord. And that is so far removed from the spirit of these verses, this humble submission, not causing other people to be offended or to stumble. It's not quite the same situation, but it's similar. I think you'll agree. Edifying one another, submitting to one another, so hard to do. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Would you really want to do something that grieved another Christian? Would you sort of go home and gloat about it and, and laugh at their reaction? So ungodly. Imagine I was invited to preach at a church where they used the authorised version of the Bible. The men all wore suits. The women all wore hats. They were very dignified Godly Christian people, but they had certain things which they believed to be right before God. If I went there and I turned up in my old jeans and trainers and I started using the NIV and my wife came with me and she was all doled up like an Essex girl in Romford Market or in a nightclub, all made up, would that be right? Would that be sensitive if I knew that this church had these standards? They felt these things were precious. Would those people be able to listen to a word I said as I opened the Bible? They'd be thinking about how I'd offended them and upset them. Maybe they're too zealous. Maybe their consciences are too oversensitive. Maybe they're too traditional. Maybe they, they could allow themselves more freedom, but that is between them and God. I am not to wound those Christians that Christ died for. Young woman, you have freedom before God to decide what you wear in church and in public. You have freedom to decide what pictures you post on Instagram, Facebook, social media. You have a choice about that. The Bible doesn't, it gives guidance about dressing, modesty. Maybe this applies to men as well, I think perhaps less, but to some extent. You have a choice about that before God. You have freedom to make a choice according to biblical principles, but you have freedom. Have you ever considered, perhaps, that the way you dress might lead a brother into temptation? You say, oh, that's his fault, that's his problem. But no, if you love your brother, think about what you wear. Think about how you carry yourself. Think about the the pictures you put online that anybody can see. 
and ask yourself, is this really being loving? You know, maybe nobody thinks anything, but that kind of sensitive conscience, that acute sensitivity is something we need to develop as Christians. How might my choices, my freedom, affect others? Could you say, Christian sister, I will never wear that dress again if it causes my brother to stumble? Could you say that? Will you insist on your rights? Young man, the Bible doesn't say anywhere that you should not kiss your girlfriend before you get married or your fiancé. I personally think it's very unwise because I think kissing is a very intimate act. But it's not a sin unless you yourself feel that it's a sin and you shouldn't be doing this. You have to make a wise choice before God about the boundaries you set in your relationship. But if you feel it's okay to kiss your girlfriend, your girlfriend doesn't feel comfortable with this before God, but you, she feels compelled to do this, or perhaps even worse than kissing, are you loving her? Is that the right thing to do? You're wounding her weak conscience. You're sinning against Christ. Have you thought about this? If you lead her to go against her conscience, next time a genuine sin might come knocking on the door, something far worse, perhaps a, a deeper level of intimacy, and you made it more difficult for her to withstand that, perhaps. What if you, you both decide, decide that you can kiss in your relationship and you feel you can set appropriate boundaries and it won't lead you into temptation? I think you're playing with fire, but if you can, before God, decide you have freedom to do this, what about other people in the church? What about other young couples who might see you and look up to you and follow your example? What if another young couple saw you kissing somewhere in public? I hope you're not doing it in private. I hope you're not doing it in public. What if they saw this and they were emboldened by your example and they kissed and it went too far and it led them into genuine sin? How would you feel? Would it bother you? Have you even considered it? Have you even thought about how your behaviour might be perceived and how it might affect other people? A slightly different example. You know, you might find the prayer meeting boring, tedious, you don't like Zoom, or perhaps you're actually in some dream world in the future and we can actually meet again. You find it tedious, you don't like it, you don't really want to come, so you decide to award yourself an evening off. And there's nothing wrong with having an evening off if you're exhausted or not feeling well, but you just don't want to come because there's something on TV or you just can't be bothered and you just don't see the point in going, especially if you're an older Christian. What kind of example is that setting to younger Christians? Some young believer might see, might notice that you're not there and conclude that the public gathering together of God's people is unimportant. It's, it's an optional extra. It's not necessary. And they might suffer spiritually. Has it occurred to you that you need to be an example for him, that the exercise of your freedom, and you're free, you're not obliged, no one's going to hold a gun to your head to come to the prayer meeting. But if, if you choose not to do that, what might be the spiritual consequences for a younger believer? You say, oh, it doesn't affect them. Nobody notices. They, they do notice. I'm sure they do notice. I have to apologise. A bit of background noise. My kids are in the building. Just a hijinks. You might be a mature Christian who's read every book in know, the Metab library. There's a younger Christian in the church who is muddled in his doctrine, has some strange views, strange ideas, 
unhelpful thought patterns and behaviour patterns left over from his past life before he was a Christian. And it might be that he's clearly wrong in some areas. What will you do? How will you respond to him? Will you just mock him, belittle him? Will you pressurise him and try to drive him forward? Of course it's right that you should teach him and gently instruct him and nurture him, but will you just force him to go faster than he can go before God? Or will you just step back and say, I'm going to pray for him, I'm going to love him, I'm going to let him go at his own pace and let God do his work? If you're not careful, you could easily wound your brother and just discourage him so that he ends up leaving the church, walking away from Christ, perhaps. And the same is true for many other areas where Christians have legitimate freedom, political views, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, what you think about the coronavirus and what should be done about it, how you dress, lifestyle choices. These are debatable matters. The the Bible gives us principles, not hard and fast rules. Are you going to exercise that freedom in a way that doesn't cause another to stumble? If you're not careful, if you're thoughtless and insist upon your rights, you could end up snuffing out, and I could end up snuffing out, smoking wick, or breaking a bruised reed, a vulnerable, fragile person that Christ has died for. Offence and division could be stirred up. Someone could be wounded. Instead of this, we need to ask, how can I love my brother? How can I build him up? How can I nurture him? Is there anything that I'm doing in any way which could lead him into a sin? Even if it's not a genuine sin, according to the Bible, that for him might be a problem. We need to develop that acute sensitivity for each other and ask God to help us to do that. Friends, I invite us, I'm looking at my own life, before God to examine our own consciences, our hearts and lives, to see if our Christian liberty is being used rightly, governed by love. Let's think about the example we set. How we can build others up rather than cause them to stumble. How we can be sensitive to their weakness. That's a Christ-like thing. Even Christ did not please himself. We need to be humble and patient, concerned for the well-being of the weak as well as the strong and submissive to lay down our rights, that the the Lord might be exalted and the church might be strengthened. And that, friends, is a difficult thing to do. We need God's grace. And I pray that the Lord will have spoken to us in some way. I, I don't mean to give a definitive list of lifestyle choices. I'm just raising some of the issues, some of the things we need to be thinking about. And there are millions. You can think of your own examples in the church. But, friends, let's do everything that leads to peace and mutual edification. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Let's pray. Father God, this is a difficult word in some ways. Please forgive me, forgive us, if we wounded others by leading them into some kind of sin, even if it's a sin just for them, something which is not helpful. We've crushed others or looked down on them. We've been puffed up by knowledge. We haven't exercised Christ-like love. Please will you forgive us and help us, Lord, to truly love each other, not in this just kind of niceness to other nice people, but it's truly laying down our lives for each other, for your sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. Come to the end of our service, but let's sing a song, which is a really beautiful song, actually, about coming before the Lord and laying down our burdens and our weaknesses and our sins before him at the foot of the cross. Thank you for being with us today. Any questions, contact me. The Lord bless you all. Amen.
the judgment. 